Let's turn together once again to Matthew 26. Uh, Matthew 26 will be on page 832 uh, and 833 of your church Bibles if you have those. Uh, Please do turn with me uh, there. Uh, We're looking at verses uh, 31 through through 56 this morning as we uh, continue into uh, this this last night uh, of of Jesus' earthly ministry, this last night uh, before going to the cross. Matthew 26, I'll begin, I'll actually read from verse 30. Uh, it's one of those odd divisions in, uh, in, in the English Bibles. Uh, why they, they divide this way, I'm not sure. But uh, Matthew 26, beginning verse 30, reading through verse 56. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. 
the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. The early church faced intense persecution in, in the first few centuries after, after Christ. Uh, in ancient Rome, the emperor would come to be honored as a god, and you showed your allegiance to, uh, to him by burning a pinch of incense. Many Christians were arrested and killed for, for refusing to, to burn that, that little pinch of, of incense. But some did despite their, their faith in, in Christ. One of the earliest controversies in the church was actually the question of what do we do with, with those people who burned the incense? Those people who denied Christ in that, that moment of intense pressure. Could they ever be allowed back into the kingdom? in return to the church of Christ. As we come to the, the last night before Jesus is killed, the intensity of, of the narrative ratchets up a notch, doesn't it? And I think the question we should be asking ourselves is what, what would cause you to abandon your Messiah? Most of you who are followers of Jesus would probably with great confidence say, absolutely nothing. That's certainly what the disciples said, isn't it? But isn't it, isn't it difficult sometimes to keep from, from burning the incense to the gods of our secular age? Does Pride Month make you question whether Scripture has it right when it teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman? Or that God has, has made us immutably male and female and he doesn't make mistakes? Isn't it tempting to to flee in fear of being called a bigot? Isn't it easier to, to put on the, the rainbow lanyard? It would make life easier, wouldn't it? Do you ever wonder when, when atheists like, like Richard Dawkins say that religion poisons everything, whether, whether the Bible and the gospel are, are really good? Do you ever struggle when, when other churches say that, that we've moved beyond the, the old views of, of Jesus? So now we should reinterpret them and reimagine them for modern society. There's, there's lots of pressure on our faith, isn't there? What would cause you to walk away? It's a difficult question, isn't it? I recognize it's a, it's a rather intense question, but, but in light of, of the facts before us this, this morning, that at the start of our passage, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to abandon him, and they, they claim quite, quite vociferously that they, they never will that they'll stand by him, that they would die for him. And yet our passage finishes with these words in verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. In light of all of that, the question before us this morning is, is relevant, isn't it? What would cause you to abandon Christ? And is there hope for you if you ever do? The good news is that there is. There's good news for all of us this morning because of what we, what we see happening here. Uh, what we see here is, is, is what happens when, when the fragility and weakness of a disciple meets the, the enduring strength of our great Savior. And we see that in, in actually those two points, the weakness of the confident believer exposed and the second, the enduring strength of, of the abandoned Savior. So first, let's look at, at the weakness of, of the confident believer and, and how it gets exposed. The first thing we, that, that should stun us, actually, is, is the immediate context of, of this episode. 
Jesus and his disciples have just had a moment, if you will. He's instituted the Lord's Supper uh, in the upper room, which Todd Cruzy did uh, an excellent job last week of explaining. But, but Jesus has given them this, this sacrament, this, uh, this ceremony that would build up their faith and the, the faith of believers throughout, throughout the centuries. They've just concluded their time with, with a hymn, with a song, probably uh, something that they sang from uh, the old Passover Hallel in, in Psalms 113 to 118. Jesus has, has ministered to them uh, tenderly and personally this very evening as he had done for, for the three years prior to this moment in his earthly ministry. They've seen his signs and his wonders. They've heard all of his teaching. And now they've received from his hands the, the bread and the wine of the first communion. But then Jesus tells them what they're going to do in verse 31, doesn't he? He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's baffling, isn't it? Does Jesus have no confidence in the power of the sacrament? That's what a lot of us wonder, isn't it? Does does Jesus not not have confidence in, in, in the things he's given us to do? Perhaps the better question is, does, does Jesus know something about us that we don't? See, this is where we, we have to, to where, where we really see the, the humanity of Jesus on display. He knows and understands what, what's in each one of us. He understands the, the fear and the brokenness. He knows what's in the heart of humanity. He knows his disciples He knows the pressure that they'll face at his arrest and his trial. He knows the fear that they would feel and and that you and I feel when we're faced with with the attacks of our secular world. So what you hear in Jesus, though, is not not, uh, hopelessness. It's not simply a cold prediction. But actually, there's, there's grace here, isn't there? In a very simple phrase, after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Now, the geography of that statement is, is less important than, than the image itself. Jesus has said that, that he, the, the shepherd, will be, will be struck, right? We heard him say that. And the flock would be scattered. And so what he, what he promises here is that when he returns, when he's raised, he's going to gather that flock once again. Those that have abandoned him, those that have, have, have fled from him, from, from, from him in, in this, this moment of, uh, of, of trial, and that he'll lead them once again as his people and as his sheep. But then Peter kind of ruins it, doesn't he? Peter speaks for all of us. He absolutely throws everyone else under the bus. <laughs> Every guy, all the other disciples are standing around me and he goes, he, he points at them and goes, even if all of them leave you, yeah. I'll, I'll stand by you. I'll die for you. No matter what comes, you know. That's brilliant, isn't it? Even if all you people abandon Jesus, I'm going to be, I'm going to stand by him. You know, other Christians might be weak in their faith, but not me. I'm not afraid to face whatever comes. I'll stand by Jesus no matter what. Peter speaks for us, doesn't he? That's how many of us think about it, don't we? And Jesus answers Peter, I tell you, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Does, does Jesus know something about us that we don't? He seems to. Jesus knows your weakness and your fear and your brokenness. Peter and the other disciples again say that, that even if they, they have to die, they'll never leave or deny Jesus. But what happens when they're put under the pressure? When faced with the, the armed mob gathered there to, to arrest Jesus and, and to take him, take him off to prison? Well, they take, one of them takes out their sword, right? We're told, I think it's Peter and, and Luke, I believe. And they take out his sword to fight. He meant what he said, didn't he? That he'd die for Jesus, but, but that's not the kind of savior Jesus is. He doesn't win by, by, uh, through, through the sword or through the strength of arms. Rather, he hands himself over to his enemies. See, so when faced with a savior who refuses to fight, that's the point at which the disciples scatter. A savior who refuses to, to fight is not... It's not the Savior that we want, is it? Because in our humanity, we cannot comprehend a Savior whose, whose strength is, is in his willingness to lay himself down for us. The disciples scatter because they're, they're faced with, with uh, uh, a clear re- and, and undeniable reality that they simply can't get past, that they can add nothing to the work of Christ, that they can contribute nothing to the work of salvation. They think that if they if they can fight for it, if they can't that, that that if they can't fight for it, if they can't do something to play their part for the Messiah, then all hope must be lost. They scatter because they think they've gotten it all wrong. And what we have to square ourselves with is that in, in the moment of our salvation here, Christ was really and truly on his own. Because the way of salvation was and is abhorrent to our human nature, isn't it? And yet it's the, the glory of Christ. It's the glory of God the Father. It's the, the glory of, of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's as glorious for, for those who believe. You see, the disciples are like you and I. They like it when Jesus gives them a, a ceremony to keep because that feels nice. And we, we feel like we can do that, don't we? But, but the table that, that Christ has just instituted and the symbolism of it would be meaningless without the seal of the work of Christ Jesus. But as the disciples come face to face with the implications of the table being played out before them in real time, the, the, the working out of their salvation, they, they scatter, don't they? Because the disciples wanted what you and I want. What we really want is to be able to offer something to Jesus, to, to contribute something to our salvation. We want Jesus to conform to, to our abilities and to the way our world works. The disciples wanted him to, to l- let them draw the sword and fight because that's something that, that they could do. That's something that, that they had seen in their world. It's something that they could understand and wrap their minds around. They wanted them to let them do the, the only thing they knew how to do. You see, this is the moment that, that we've come to where, where salvation is, is about to become real. And it can only be done one way. 
either the the world will crush Jesus or Jesus will shatter the world as we know it or perhaps a bit of both but if there's one thing that's very clear from our our passage this morning it's, it's that it isn't through our own strength that we're saved Rather, it's through the the strength of the abandoned Savior, which is our our second point that we see, the enduring strength of the abandoned Savior. If we step back for a moment uh, and and step back into the garden with Jesus, what do we see? Well, we we see a man who who quite literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he he, he takes these men, these these disciples with him, these ones who've, who've, uh, who've promised this, that, that, that they'd give all their strength, they'd give their lives, they'd give everything for Jesus. And he, he takes them and he places some of them at the, the entrance to the garden as a, as a lookout. And then he goes in with, with the three of his, his closest followers. And he tells them in verse 38, my, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus doesn't appear strong in, in this moment, does he? He admits to, to fear and to, to sorrow. It's quite a jarring scene, actually, isn't it? We, we go from the, the relative peace of the upper room into a garden where, where uh, Jesus speaks of the, the, the terror of his soul in this moment. He tells us of the fear that's, that's penetrating his whole personhood. This is actually the, the most honest assessment of death that our world has ever seen. Frederick Lay contrasts uh, the death of Christ and what, what goes on in Gethsemane with, with the death of Socrates. Now, Socrates was a, a philosopher. Most of you have heard of him. He, he was executed about 400 years before Jesus by forced poisoning. And the accounts of his death are, uh, are, are, are talk about how he, he was stoic, really, in the face of death. How he sort of accepted it, and, and he peacefully drinks uh, the the poison that's that's given to him. That he just sort of accepts it uh, as presented to him. Death. What we see in Socrates' death was a was a truly human death, in that he only really lived half a life. Because Socrates, like like all of us, like like every every person who's ever lived, didn't live for the glory of God. So when he, when he came to death, he could repress the fear and, and he could organize his mind in such a way as to, to approach it gently and quietly. See, we, we humans venerate that kind of death, don't we? We look at Jesus and, and go, that's, a, that, that's, that's terrible the way he's behaving. We look at someone like Socrates and go, yeah, that's, that's how death should be. We should just sort of accept it. Hogwarts' greatest headmaster... Albus Dumbledore once said that to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. I think actually one of the great lies of, of the devil is to make us think that death is no big deal. Even though on, on some level we, we all fear it, on another level there's, there's something deep down in us that, that knows we deserve it. And that we, we can't escape it. And so we've concocted all kinds of, of ways of of reimagining and, and redefining death to simply be the next thing or nothing at all. This is why, we, actually, we need to take very careful notice here of how Jesus approaches death and how he understands it and how he looks at it and how he experiences it. 
because it's the, the most honest and pro probably the only honest death our world has ever seen. The one who's perfectly righteous. The one who's, who's fully God, therefore eternal, and, and he's, he's fully man, yet without sin. The only one who ever lived among us who, who didn't deserve death is faced with the, the punishment declared by God for our sin. The wages of sin is death. How does Jesus react to that? He's sorrowful and he's fearful in the face of death because his death is an honest death. A truly a deserved death. See, if you think if you think of death any differently than Jesus, then actually you've got it all wrong. You're deluded and you're fooling yourself. Deep down we all know that we deserve death. But Jesus didn't. And he recognized it for the, the terror that, that it actually is. Yet even now we get the sense that death will not overcome him, don't we? Jesus prays and he prays three times. He prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And, and three times he prays. And, and, and three times... Matthew says he's, he's met with silence. And as, he's, as he prays, he, he, he returns back to the disciples who, who promised to stand by him. And, and what are they doing there? They're sleeping, right? But Jesus keeps praying. The, the three times he prays, and three times there's no apparent answer to those prayers. So what does Jesus do? What would you and I do? How would you how, how do you how do you respond when you when you feel like your your prayers haven't been answered? You know, we get resentful, don't we? Jesus seems to become though increasingly strengthened in his obedience to the clear will of the Father. That's an, actually an incredible response, isn't it, when we stop and think about it? Think about what we pray for. You know, we, we ask God for important things, don't we? We ask him for the things that, that we really feel are, are important in our lives. We, we pray for, for jobs that will, will make us happier. And then when we're stuck in the same one for seemingly endlessly, we start to wonder if God really cares, or we, we get frustrated and we get angry. We ask God to heal our aches and our pains. I feel like he, he doesn't care about our suffering if we're still struggling with those aches and pains weeks or months later. Some of you are, are praying for a spouse who will love you unconditionally, but you'll get angry when, when he gives you one who, who wants you to be more holy and he tries to change you. We ask God for, for children to, to, that, that uh, will, will be a blessing to us. We get frustrated when they're little and they, they keep us up half the night. You know, we've got all these things that we pray for, don't we? And I'm not saying we shouldn't be praying for these things. They're important. But let's get some perspective here from, from Jesus' prayer. Jesus is literally asking God to take the cup of his wrath from him. And the cup of, of his wrath is, is simply a, a way of, of, of talking about the, the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, the cup was a, was a term for, for the wrath of God that, that we see used throughout the, the uh, Old Testament prophets. 
uh, as a way of, of representing the, the judgment of God. In most cases, it was the temporal judgment of God on disobedient Israel. For example, Isaiah 51.17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. That's, that's how, how Jesus understood the, the cup. That's the imagery he's using. is this, this cup of wrath that, that has to get drunk to the dregs. Unlike the ancient Israel, though, this is a cup that Jesus doesn't deserve. And yet when he's asked to have that cup taken from him, the request is met with silence. And in that silence... The word of God is is sufficient for Christ to know the will of the Father. And I would suggest the same is true for us. We, We pray by faith, don't we? And we live by faith. And we live by the word of God given in, in Scripture. Jesus was, was unwavering in his obedience to the will of the Father. And the, the silence of, of, of the response to his prayer was simply affirmation for Christ of the, the work that he'd been given. And you, we, we get that sense, don't we, when the, the, the enemies gather, when, the, uh, when those come to, to betray him. Jesus tells his disciples, have you come out, or he says, yeah, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus understood the word of God and he understood his calling from God. And in his, his prayers, even, even in the seeming silence, God is, is building up Christ for the, the task ahead. The cup that Jesus would drink was the cup not of, of temporal judgment. Rather, it was the cup of the, the full wrath of God for the sins of the world, the sins that, that you and I have committed, the sins that marked us out as deserving eternal death. Jesus would drain that cup to the dregs, and he would replace it with the, the cup that we saw last week, the cup of, of his blood, the cup that would, that would proclaim blessing and grace and mercy wherever it was rightly received and celebrated. You see, that's the the beauty of the the terrible Garden of Gethsemane. The place where where Jesus suffered and was betrayed is the the place where, where you and I find life and eternal peace with God the Father through the enduring strength and obedience of the Son. See, like the disciples, we try to make a mess of it, don't we? We can't help ourselves. But the wonder and beauty of the gospel is that even as Jesus promised the, the straying and fleeing disciples that, that he would come again in three days and go before them to Galilee, so he promises us that he'll come again to lead us to the place that, that he's gone ahead of us to prepare for us. And we can trust the promise because we have a Savior who is willing to, to drink the cup that we deserve. 
and replace it with the cup of his blessing and mercy through faith. Let us